0: Good morning, and would you turn your Bible to Acts chapter 2. These folks came from all different parts of the world. They didn't know that their lives would be mended together for a long period of time. They would sing together. They would pray together, share their belongings. They would laugh together and weep together. It was an accident. They didn't intend for these things to happen. It just did. And their lives were merged together from that point forward as they were sort of stuck with one another as a result of the events that transpired on that day. What I'm describing to you is not the scene from Acts chapter 2. In fact, it's not a scene in the Bible at all. It's the scene of a flight that I was on last week, flight 4195, as we were stuck in the airport For a couple of hours due to inclement weather and some things with delays. We sang happy birthday to one of the people that were on the flight. We ate pretzels together. There was some weeping as some individuals missed connections. Phones died and phones were shared. Our lives were mended together for several hours as a result of those delays. But what we have in Acts chapter 2 is not an accident. It's what God had always promised. In Mark 9 and verse 1, you remember Jesus told his disciples that some of them would not taste of death until they saw the kingdom of God come with power. They would remain in Jerusalem until they received the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit that would allow them to preach the gospel to all of creation and carry that message. And when we turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what we see. The miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit comes down on the 12 and they begin to preach and proclaim the message that Jesus is king of the universe, that he is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. And at first they're put off as their adversaries accused them of being drunk. But Peter quickly silences them as he dips back into the Old Testament, quoting passages from Joel and several of the Psalms. And then he gets to his point. This same Jesus whom you've crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. They're cut to the heart and convicted in verse 37, and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells them in verse 38, repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 2 and verse 41 says about 3000 of them did that that day. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who needs to do just that, who needs to come to the same realization that these folks came to. Jesus is the son of God, and I'm convicted of my sin, and I believe that. And if you are willing and ready to turn from those sins and confess with the mouth which your heart believes, we'd be happy at the conclusion of this lesson to baptize you into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins as God adds you to his kingdom. But Luke doesn't end the chapter in Acts chapter 2 in verse 41. He goes on. And what we have... Chapter two, 42 through 47 is a picture of the church as God designed it, as God would have it. Luke tells us that these individuals, once they obeyed the gospel, their lives were merged together from that point forward in and around Jerusalem. And Luke not only tells us in the book of Acts how to be a Christian, he tells us what God's plan for the church and how he wants us to behave. The text has been read for us a moment ago, but Luke goes into their life after their baptism. And he says that they were devoted or they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came on every soul as many wonders and signs are being done by the apostles and all that believe were together. And they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and goods and distributing the proceeds to everyone that had a need. They were together day by day in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And they praised God and have favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day, those that were being saved. This morning, what I want us to see from Acts 2, to 47, is the church as God designed her. What we have in Acts chapter 2 is a picture of what God has always desired for his people. What he desires for the church at Lehman and churches of Christ in every place. Would you notice six things with me from the text and then we'll extend the invitation. The first one is biblical worship. In Acts 2, in verse 42, it says that these individuals, after they were baptized, right after verse 41, they that gladly received his word were baptized that same day, 3,000 people were added to the church. But then in verse 42, it says, your translation may have, they continued steadfastly. The ESV has that they were devoted. The idea behind this Greek term is to be attached, to be joined to something or to be busy with something. And would you appreciate that right out of the gate after these folks obeyed the gospel, they are busy with biblical worship and doing what God would have Have them to do. They're devoted to it. They're addicted to it, to worshiping God. Luke mentions four things to the apostles doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers more on that in a moment. But just first appreciate their attitude toward those things. It mattered to them. And it's what they were invested in. I heard a preacher say one time when he was growing up, he grew up in the church and he said he had a drug problem. He was drugged to Bible class. He was drugged to worship. He was drugged to the gospel meetings. He was just forced to go. He really didn't have a choice. And while there might be some value in that, these folks were not drugged to it, but they had a devoted spirit. It's what Paul describes in Romans 12 and verse 12 when he says, be devoted to prayer, rejoicing in hope and to be patient in tribulation. That's the picture that we have in Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter two and verse 42. It's the psalmist in Psalm 34, and verse three, when David says magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. It's what these individuals were interested in. Now, notice their actions. The apostles doctrine, that's the preaching and teaching. Biblical preaching, as defined by the New Testament, is meant to educate, to exhort, to edify and to inspire. And that's what the apostles did. They knew enough to obey the gospel. But if they were going to continue in Christ for the long haul, they needed to continue to be taught. And that's what the apostles doctrine is. It's the biblical teaching and preaching that encourages and builds up God's people. They continued in the apostles doctrine and in the fellowship. That same word is used in 2 Corinthians 9 in verse 13, where the Bible uses it to talk about giving. But it's this joint participation as their lives knit together now that they were a part of the same family. In the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. This breaking of bread in Acts 2 and verse 42 is not a common meal like you'll see in verse 46. It's the synecdoche for the Lord's Supper. Acts 20 and verse 7 says Christians every first day of the week got together and did just what a few moments ago to remember why we're Christians in the first place, because Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on our behalf and then continued in the prayers. The book of Acts is dripping with their prayers. This in Acts one and verse 14. They devoted themselves to prayer before they ever said a word about preaching. It's in Acts two in verse 42, Acts six and verse four. The apostles say we have to give ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And in Acts 12 and verse 12, when Peter is in prison, they're at Mary's house and they're praying. I just want you to see that God has always designed the church to be engaged in biblical worship as we exalt him together. It's what the church is really all about. Biblical worship must have God approved actions, but also a God approved attitude. And we can't compromise either of those and be pleasing to God. God wants our worship. It matters what we offer to God in this moment. It must be biblical, not only in our actions, but also in our activities. But Acts 2 and verse 42 goes a step further than that. It is not enough to assemble to worship God on the first day of the week and do the right things in the right ways. Notice the text again. We must also do it habitually as the Bible teaches us to do it. They were devoted to it. It was their regular habit. It was their custom. Here's the question for us. Is it our custom? Is it our habit? They continued steadfastly. They were devoted to it. It was just a part of who they were. Appreciate that. Acts not only tells us what they did, but also the predictable rhythms in the New Testament church. If you were looking for these folks, they were just going to be worshiping God because that's who they are. And that's what they did. Every one of us has a habit when it comes to this point. Hebrews 10:25 encourages us not to adopt the wrong habit, not abandoning the assembling of the saints of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but encouraging one another. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching, some people develop the habit of never being present. Acts chapter two, God designed the church for us to worship together biblically. You know, we can't say that everything in our lives and everything in our Christian lives revolves around what we do in worship. There's far more to our Christian lives than what we do when we're assembled together. But there's not any less to it. If we're not serious about this, the remainder of our Christian lives are going to be affected in a negative way. Mark Twain is famous for his famously has have said to say the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you figure out why. Well, as Christians, we've been born again to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. First Peter two and verse five. And what we're doing this morning, you'll never do anything more important than this to offer up God your very best. God designed the church. To offer up biblical worship to Him. And we need to continue that today. Now here's number two. They were busy for the Lord. Verse 43 says that awe or fear came on every soul. Now this isn't awe or fear merely as it relates to being terrified, but it's also about being amazed. They were impressed by the things that Peter and the others were doing. Remember, they were going to receive the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit. The apostles were and they did and they were able to do signs. Look at verse 43 signs and wonders were being done by the apostles. But Luke tells us more. He says many signs and many wonders were being done by the apostles. When you read throughout the book of Acts, here's the beginning of it here in Acts chapter two and verse 43. But this is merely the beginning. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter five and verse 12 that many more signs and wonders were being done. As Peter would walk by individuals that were sick, Acts 5, 12 through 16, if his shadow just hovered over these folks, they were healed and cured of their disease or their sickness. A man named Ananias in Acts chapter 9, 32 to 35 was healed. He'd been bedridden for eight years as Peter went to that town and healed him. Acts chapter 3, 1 through 10 mentions the man at the gate called Beautiful who was crippled and Peter healed him. And then there's the man in Lystra in Acts 14 and Publius's father at the end of the book of Acts and Acts 28. The point is there were not only signs and wonders done in the book of Acts, but the Bible tells us there were many of them because this is how God designed the church. When you read about the miracles in the book of Acts, don't just be awed and impressed by the miraculous power that was present. Appreciate that this was a church that didn't sit on their talents, but they served with them. The reason why God equipped these men to do the signs that he did was so that they might perform miraculous power. And then it would give them an opportunity to preach the gospel. The next time you read the book of Acts, notice this pattern. There is the miracle or the sign performed by the apostles. There is the awe and amazement of the audience. And then there's the opportunity for proclamation. That's the pattern that we find over and over in the book of Acts. The apostles speak in tongues. There's the awe and the amazement. And then there's the avenue to preach the gospel and get the message out. The miraculous age has ceased. We'll never do the miracles that they did. God hasn't afforded us that power. We now have the completed revelation of God. But that doesn't mean that the time has ceased for us to lift up our heads to the opportunities around us and put our hands to the plow and to be busy for the Lord. The early church was busy doing what God would have them to do. They did many signs and many wonders. And this is what we have to be saying to ourselves. Are we doing the same? The Bible says to be not weary in well doing Galatians six and verse nine. Second Thessalonians three in verse 13, Paul reiterates it. Why does the Bible emphasize that fact? Because it's all too easy to grow weary in doing well. And soon you're not doing well at all. And so we need to investigate our lives to see, are we the church that God would have us to be? And are we busy for the Lord as busy as they were? Their signs and their deeds were so numerous that even their enemies couldn't deny it. The Sanhedrin told them to stop preaching in his name and stop doing signs. But in Acts four and verse 16, they say that a notable miracle has been done among them. All have seen it and we cannot deny it. They were busy and their work spoke for them. And do our work speak for us? What every church of Christ in every place must continuously ask herself is this. Are we doing enough good that our community has taken notice? And here's the second question. If we disappear tomorrow. Would anybody notice and would anybody care? You see, the church in Jerusalem was so loud in her good works, you couldn't miss them. They were just doing what it is that God had had them to do. We don't have the miraculous measure of the Holy Spirit to do the miracles, but we still have the same God and we must do good works. Here are several questions to ask ourselves concerning our busyness and faithfulness to the Lord. Number one, what can I do? For the cause of Christ. This is a personal question. You need to be saying this to yourself and I'll say it to myself. What can I do for Jesus' sake? In Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, the text says in verse 10 that each of these individuals was given a a measure of money, a talent, according to his ability. You have ability. God has gifted you to do certain things. There are things that only you can do for the Lord. And if you don't do them, they won't be done. What can I do for the cause of Christ? The second question is, once I figure that out, what can I do for the cause of Christ? The next question is, am I doing what I can with what I've been given? In Matthew 25, after he gives the five talent man his and the two talent man his and the one talent man, the text says on two separate occasions, the five talent man produced five more and the two talent man, he produced two more. Am I doing what I can with what I have? And here's the third question. What can I do for the Lord? Am I doing what I can and am I doing it as often as I can, as frequently as I can? Galatians 6 and verse 10 says, as you therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. It's one thing to say, you know, I can write cards for the Lord. I can write cards to people. Where I can go visiting. You've acknowledged your talent and maybe you do it once a week or once every year. But the Bible says, as you have the opportunity, we must not only identify our talent and put it into practice. But it must be our habitual deeds that we continue to do over and over again. No church individually with when it relates to group collectively has God's approval to become mannequins in the kingdom where we just sort of freeze and pause and stop and not do anything. Every one of us must be active. The Bible says always abounding in the work of the Lord. What Paul means in that verse is wherever the line is, wherever the line for mediocrity is, always abounding. You find out how you can do more. Peter and John and Paul, they didn't just do some miracles. Luke says they did many of them. They worked. And, you know, God has designed the church to be that way. You can't do everything in the kingdom, but you can do something. There's the five talent man, the two talent man and the one talent man. There is no zero talent man. He was punished for pretending to be so. But God had given him something and God's given you something. The church as God designed her is to be busy for his sake, doing his will. Now, here's number three. The church had a benevolent spirit. In verse 44 and verse 45, we read that they were together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and their belongings and they distributed the proceeds. They distributed their goods to every individual as the need arose. You remember these folks came to Jerusalem for the first Pentecost following the resurrection. This is something that always fell on the Lord's day. Leviticus chapter 23 tells us all about it. They didn't plan to hear the gospel. They didn't know what God had set up or in mind. But they obeyed the gospel and here they are. And now there's this need and these Christians are helping their brothers and their sisters as they are giving of their means, giving of their goods so that these individuals can be sustained. Luke tells us of a similar occasion in Acts chapter four, verse thirty two down through verse thirty seven as they depart of their goods. Notice Acts two and verse forty four. They that believe were together and they had all things in common. In the similar account in Acts chapter four, and verse thirty two, it says they were together and they were of one heart. And one soul, they were knit together. They shared with one another. The reality is, once you share the faith with somebody, it's not a big leap to share your funds with them, is it? And that's what they did. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul speaks about the Christians in Macedonia. And this is how he describes their giving. He says that they first gave themselves to the Lord. And then their financial contribution followed. And that is the way that it always is. The benevolent God that we serve... By very nature, if he influences us, motivates us to do the same thing. What we have in Acts chapter two is not communism. Their possessions were still very much theirs. They weren't forced into giving their goods. That would remove the power of what Luke is describing. It wasn't by compulsion. It was motivated by compassion. As they saw the need, their hearts were just stirred and they said, these are our brethren. These are our family members. And guess what? They have a need and we want to meet them and help them. You remember when Ananias and Sapphira tried to pretend to have and they sold a portion of their goods. They said they gave all of it, but they kept back apart. And Luke says that Peter rebuked them. And in Acts five and verse four, he says to Ananias, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, it was still your own. They did this because they wanted to. And the church as God designed her is to always have this benevolent spirit, the heart that says none among us will lack. Now, if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. We have a personal responsibility to see to our own needs. But we're brethren one with another. This caught the attention of the outsiders because nobody in the Roman world, there was no welfare. There was no social structure. It was a strength built economy. And that is if you couldn't work, if you couldn't provide for your own, you were left to the elements, you were left to yourself. But the Christians changed the world. They served Jesus, who said, give and it'll be given to you. Pressed down and shaken together, running over. Men will give into your bosom. It's the principle that Paul taught the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's what they did. They were benevolent. It was their spirit to want to give, to want to help others. What Mark Bloomberg, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett all have in common is they're the in, they're in this list of individuals that were mentioned in the business business insider article which describes the 20 most generous people in the world. Collectively, over their lifetime, they've given away $50 billion to different charities and individuals in need. Now, the article says how much they're worth, and then it says how much each individual on this list is given. But it doesn't say anything about the motivation for their giving or why they've given as much as they have. But this is one thing you walk away from the article knowing without any discrepancy. They're worth a lot. And they don't mind parting ways with a lot to help whatever cause they think is worthy. Our pockets may never be as deep as that theirs, but our hearts must be if we're going to be God's people. John says, "Herein is love that he laid down our, his life for us, we ought to also lay down our lives for the brethren. If any man sees his brother in need and just shuts up his heart of compassion against him, how does the love of God dwell in him? My brethren, let us not love in word or but indeed, and in truth, first John three sixteen through 18, the first century church said what I have done is God's. And when God's people need it, I'll share it. Few things tell us how serious we take the teachings of Jesus or fail to than our view of material possessions. You know, it's not a sin to be wealthy or rich. It's not a sin to have possessions. But the problem is always when our possessions have us. These folks saw that their brethren were in need and they were willing to sell their property and their goods because this is how God designed the church as a family so that they might be together. I knew of a preacher once he was sitting in his office and there was a knock at the door. He got up to answer the door and it was a visitor. It wasn't during the normal assembly hours. And this was the question as soon as he opened the door. Is this the church that helps people? And I don't know what the person meant, but the answer to that question among God's people must always be. Yes. And most assuredly. Now, maybe it's not the help that they desire or maybe it's not the help in the way that God designed it. Maybe they're mistaken about that. But if we are the church which belongs to Jesus Christ, we must always be the church that helps people. In second Corinthians nine and verse 13, Paul says he thanked God for their liberal distribution to the brethren and to all the saints, pure and undefiled religion is to visit or take care of the needs of the widows and the orphans and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This principle in Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45, it goes back to the Old Testament. It's Leviticus 23, 23 in New Testament application. God had told his people, don't glean the corners of your fields because there are strangers and sojourners that have needs among you. You're to help them. You're to be kind and benevolent toward them. And God designed the church to have a benevolent spirit. Here's the next one. They bonded together every day. Notice Acts 2 and verse 46. They continued daily in the temple and from house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and with singleness of heart. It's impossible to read the book of Acts, especially chapter two, but really the remainder of the New Testament and get the idea that these Christians were punching their ticket twice a week, checking their boxes and going to their homes. It's just not there. They weren't asking questions like, listen, do I have to come back for this night service or do I have to stay for Bible study? You just couldn't get that across to these folks in Acts chapter two, because the text says they were together day by day. More than that, the New Testament sometimes talks about times when they are apart and it always bothered them to no end. The last verse in third John, third John 14, he says, I long to see you so that we can be face to face. We want to be face to face so that our joy with you might be full. Second John in verse 12. When they were separated from each other, there were tears in their eyes. Second Timothy one and verse four. Paul says, Timothy, I long to see you. But until then, I'm mindful of your tears. It broke their hearts to be separated. First Thessalonians three and verse one, the apostle says, when we were separated from you, our hearts were torn. And as a result, we sent Timothy in the meantime. The early Christians, they loved being in one another's company. They bonded together. And the text says they did it every single Day Because it made him stronger. A woman wrote an article and she talked about this idea of being together and the need to do so in the New York Times. And the title of the article was social interaction is critical for physical and for mental health. She cites studies from Duke and from Harvard and one study that showed up in the New England Journal of Medicine. And she talked about the need to be together and to spend time with other individuals. And this is the last line in the article. She talks about the impact that social interaction has on us, both mentally and physically. She says, be sure to eat your veggies and exercise, but don't forget to connect. What well, she spent hours and hours of researching at the top universities throughout the world is something that laid in the pages of your New Testament for almost 2000 years. The Bible's been saying this for a long time. We need to be in one another's company. You know, I'm glad for the time in which we live, the technological advances. I really don't envy the horse and buggy days. I don't. But appreciate this. It doesn't matter how far we go in technology. It is always going to be better to have face to face than time. Hebrews 10 and verse 24 says exhort and encourage one another daily while it's called today. There are some things we just have to be in one another's company in order to accomplish. And the early Christians, as the God designed the church, bonded together every day. You know why this matters It's because you need someone when your heart is broken, when life crushes you. Romans 12 and verse 15, you need someone to weep with you when you weep. When things are going your way and things couldn't be better, you don't need to rejoice in isolation. But you need someone to encourage you and build you up when you would rather not do the right thing. Hebrews three and verse 13 says you and I need to be encouraged day by day. We need this. And the early Christians knew it and they made the most of it. They bonded together. They exhorted one another. They built each other up. I was in Texas for a meeting last week and a woman told me, you know, the Christian four letter word is fine. F.I.N.E. Everybody's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's going fine. But we know the truth, don't we? We're often fractured and broken and struggling and we don't get stronger in separation. And so these folks spent their time together around one another, building deep relationships that really got to the heart of the matter so that we could be the people that God would have us to be. Richard Hollingshead was a man in 1933 who invented, designed and instituted the first drive in movie theater. You remember these? They blew up in the 50s and 60s. And you could come with your family and your popcorn and your radio. You didn't have to talk to a soul. You're in your car. Everybody's at the same place in the same lot and watching the very same show, but separated. Now, we've graduated to stream television and now you don't have to leave your house. And that's a great thing for movie watching. It's a terrible thing for discipleship. To say, well, my family, we're just in our own spiritual cubicle and we're off to ourselves on the side. Notice the text again, daily in the temple and in each other's homes. God designed the church to be this way. What a shame to be a member of God's church 10, 20, 30, 40 years right here at Lehman Avenue and not really know your brethren. To not know their kids and their grandkids, their likes, their dislikes, their weaknesses and their strengths, their greatest struggles and their greatest triumphs. The church was invested in one another in the first century. That's how God wanted it to be. And he still wants the same thing today. Now, here's number five. God designed the church to make a big impression on outsiders. You know, verse 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. We might assume and we would be wrong in assuming so that the church, as soon as she begun, was enemies with all of her surrounding neighbors. But that's not what the text says. That's a lopsided view of how things actually were. As the church started out, people looked in, they stopped and they stared and they wanted to know who these people were and how could we get in on this. Luke doesn't say they have favor with some of the people. They had favor with all of them. God has not sent us into the world to become enemies and bitter enemies of our surrounding culture. Instead, God has said, I want you to be a bridge to bring them back to me. Praising God and having favor with all the people is a part of what we should be doing. Now, listen, the church can't pander to the surrounding culture and we can't compromise the gospel in order to please them. But the New Testament says we shouldn't make enemies of them pointlessly just for enemy's sake. They saw their preaching. They saw their benevolence. They saw their togetherness. They had favor with all the people. It's like Jesus in Luke two fifty two. He continued in growth and wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Notice how many times the New Testament says that God's people are to have favor with God in heaven, but also with individuals that they are living around their contemporaries. Romans 12 and verse 17 says having things honest provided in the sight of God and man. Second Corinthians eight twenty one says the same thing. Paul says, it's been my desire to have a conscience void of offense before God and man. The church that says, I don't really care what the world thinks. We're just going to do our own thing is not the church that's designed in the New Testament. The New Testament church wants to God. But also, if it's within our power, without compromising the message, we want to appeal to those that are on the outside. They had favor with all of the people. Listen, they didn't convert all of the people, but they had favor with them. We won't make followers of Jesus out of them if we don't first have favor with them. Agrippa said, almost, Paul, you persuade me to be a Christian. It's attractive. I'm not there yet, but I'm close. Maybe you don't know anybody like this. But do you know how many people woke up today and they're this close to ending it? They don't think that the world needs one of them, that they could just step off the scene and nobody would miss them. You know how many people struggle with addiction And depression, anxiety and self-worth. Listen, as people are on the edge of life's cliff and they see the Christians approaching, we must always be pulling them back and never pushing them over. When people saw the first century Christians, they were impressed with the way that they lived. We should give people a reason to keep going. We should be saying to people, there's something better, There's something greater. You matter. God loves you. He's the only one who has really ever loved you to death. Give him a try. Can you imagine a visitor peeking? On the First century assembly, maybe in Mary's house or some other Christian, and they see men and women, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and their masters in the same assembly, praying and participating and preaching and praising. There's only one reason. There's only one way to reconcile. those. The tomb really was empty. And these people believed it. And it made all the difference in their world. They had favor with all of the people. God has designed the church to make a big impression on outsiders. When people look in on us at Lehman Avenue or at the Church of Christ in any location, they should say, I may not agree with those people. But I want to know more about them. That's one. Luke says that they were blessed with growth by God. The Lord added to the, their number, the Lord added to the church day by day, those that were being saved. Can you imagine being a Christian in the church in Jerusalem and seeing somebody baptized every single day because that's what the Bible says happened? Look at Acts 2 and verse 41. It says that 3,000 individuals were baptized on that first Pentecost. You fast forward to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, now the number is up to some 5,000 Christians, just counting the men. Acts 6 and verse 1 says the number of the disciples in Jerusalem, it just multiplied, it expanded, it exploded. Men plant and water, but God gives the increase. But he's always designed the church to be that way. God wants us to grow both spiritually and numerically. But you and I have to grow in the grace and in the knowledge before we can ever grow in number. Second Peter three and verse 18. God designed the church to grow and the church was blessed by growth when they did things the way that God would have them to do it. As we go out and reach out to our friends and our neighbors, God will honor our efforts if we submit to his will and do things in the way that he should, I, I'm glad that Luke leaves this for last, that they did all the things that were in their control. And then God did the things that only he could do. And he gave the increase. The Lord added to the church day by day, those individuals that were being saved. It's our job to the best of our ability in our generation to get the whole gospel to the whole world. Colossians one twenty three says that Paul and his companions, they did it in their generation. Now it's up to us to do the same. They were to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and that's what they did. But appreciate that when we do that, we never go alone. Jesus says, disciple the nations. And the very next verse says, by the way, I'm with you all the time to the end of the age. And God blessed the church with growth. God wants the church at Lehman to grow spiritually and numerically. And we can and we will. When we are the church in the way that God has ultimately designed her to be. Acts chapter two. Is the birthday of the church. God had this planned in his mind from eternity's past that people from all over the world would be pressing into this kingdom. Just like Isaiah said, he said that there would be people from all nations bursting into the kingdom. And Acts chapter two shows us that that's exactly what happened. The first time the gospel was preached, people, 3000 of them said, I believe Jesus is the son of God. They turned from their sins to their savior. They were immersed in water. But Luke doesn't end the chapter in verse 41, and we can't leave our understanding and our appreciation of the text there either. He goes on to show us the church and the way that God has always designed her to be. The church that belongs to Jesus Christ must always look inward at ourselves and say, are we doing what God wants us to do? We must always look upward to God and say, God, help us in every area and in every endeavor that we strive to do for your sake. And then we must always look outward. And say to our friends, to our neighbors, our loved ones, and our enemies, there's room for one more. If this is your invitation, if you need to respond, we're going to be led in a song to encourage us. If we can pray for you and pray with you, we're your family and that's what we're here to do. If we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.